Chapter Three of A Bachelor Girl in Burma by Geraldine E. Mitten. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Three Burmese Ladies at Home. Across the grey waters of the Gulf of Mataban, nearly a day's journey by steamer, lies Moulmain, once the headquarters of the English occupation when, after the first Burmese war, England held only Arakan and Tenasserim. It was seven o'clock in the morning when we started from the wharf after a rather cheerless awakening before the sun was up. Even under the blue sky and strong sun of midday, the waters of the gulf are never anything but grey, owing to the mud and silt brought down by the waters of the three great rivers, the Irrawaddy, Sitang, and Salween. It was four in the afternoon before we came in sight of the high green ridge upon the slopes of which Moulmain is built, and the scene grew more and more interesting as we approached. In midstream were one or two steamers on which coolies were loading teak. Their brown bodies and red loincloths and turbans glowed bright in the sunlight. The waterfront was edged with unlovely mills and wharves, including a large one belonging to the Bombay Burma Trading Corporation of which my host was a manager. Behind these, the houses were dotted about amid a fine growth of trees, right up to the slopes of the ridge, which ran parallel with the river and was crowded with no less than three groups of pagodas. I could see at once that Moulmain might be a much pleasanter place to live in than Rangoon, and I hoped I would see as much as I wanted to of the inside of Burman life. I had an advantage in this, an advantage that many people who have lived for years in the country cannot command, for my hostess, Mrs. M., had made friends with the best class of Burmese ladies, and regularly called upon them and invited them to see her, a thing that very few Europeans would think of doing. It is indeed owing to her help in this, and in many other things, that I was able to get an idea of the life of the people at all. It is really surprising considering the intrinsic interest of Moulmain, and the many excursions that may be easily made from it, how few people find their way here. What tourists come to the country at all, almost invariably stay a day in Rangoon, go on up to Mandalay, and back by the river. Ten or twelve days is considered enough for Burma, and yet, if they only took the trouble to find out how much they miss by this rush, they would probably stay longer. The steamers across the gulf are very comfortable, and run three times a week. In the town is a boarding-house, Salween House, and a dak bungalow, and though the accommodation is not brilliant, it will serve. At the wharf was a babbling crowd through which we had to pass before we drove away to Mrs. M.'s bungalow. This stood high above Salween Park, which is very like an English park in general though the trees are all of different kinds from ours. Later I learned to recognize some of them. Banyan, Gold Mohur, Amherstia, Paduk, and so on. The bungalow itself is very pretty, built, as they almost all are, of rich dark brown teakwood, which has a grain in it like oak. In front stood two glorious masses of contrasting color, a large bush of plumbago, simply covered with blossom, and a huge poinsettia, much higher than a tall man. The whole of the front of the bungalow is open, and a staircase leads from the lower veranda to the upper one, 
which is used as the sitting room. In the rains, heavy mat blinds fill in the open sides, but while I was there, except for the roof overhead, we might have been out of doors. The bedrooms all open into one another, and each has its bathroom or bath closet attached. The Anglo-Burman bathroom is very simple, but not at all inconvenient. There is generally a large oval tin bath, though sometimes one only gets a wooden tub, two or three great earthenware chatties full of cold water, to be ladled out by a dipper as required, and the sweeper brings up the hot water by an outside staircase when he has heated it in the kerosene tins over a wood fire in the compound. The floor is of wood or cement. There is nothing to spoil, and you may splash as you like. In fact, in some bathrooms built out on piles from the side of the bungalow, holes are bored in the floor, to let the surplus water run away like a shower-bath beneath. And in one place, at least where the bathroom was on the ground, the same end was achieved by simply emptying the bath onto the floor and letting it sink in or stream off as it pleased. Kerosene tins are a staple of life in Burma, and they are used in almost every conceivable capacity. The native carries water in them. He uses them as cauldrons in which to heat it. He ladles out water with them, he keeps stores in them, he even occasionally packs his small belongings in one when he travels, using it as a portable trunk. Up at Bemo, I saw a house made of kerosene tins flattened out. It is an awful thing to think what would happen if the imported oil were suddenly to be sent into the country in bottles or in some other form of receptacle. That no taps are found in the ordinary bungalow goes without saying. Every drop of water has to be carried up from the well in the compound, if there is one, and if that runs dry, then from the nearest hydrant. But it is a country where labor is cheap. It is one man's life work to carry water, and nothing is thought about it. For drinking purposes every house has a filter, but soda water is almost universally used, and is half the price it is in England. While I stayed at Moulmain we had the French hours for meals, which I found so convenient that afterwards when I travelled about, alone, I adopted them. That is to say, they are convenient in a country where the middle of the day is too hot to work in comfort. They would not do it all in England. We had chota hazri, with some additions such as potted meat or an egg, before rising. Déjeuner at 11.30 or 12 tea at about 4.30, and dinner at 8. This gives one the opportunity of using all the available time in the day. The servants, who are natives of India, are hired on a totally different system from ours. They get their own food. In some places an allowance of rice is made to them, but they do not use house food at all. They sleep out in a go-down in the compound. They have no days off. The butler is the most important and receives from twenty-five to thirty rupees a month. Under him there may be a second boy, who gets about twenty rupees, but in many houses there are just the butler and the chokra, who acts as second boy, helps to wait at table, and goes messages. The native cook gets about twenty-five rupees per month, the ayah about twenty. The ayah in this family was a most hard-working little woman. She rather embarrassed me by laying hands on every available garment and washing it and hanging it on the back veranda to dry in the sun. 
At first I was often at a loss, and turned everything upside down, in a hasty search for the missing thing. But at last I learnt to be quite sure I could find it hanging on the rail near the big mango, in which the crows sat, and squawked like parrots. Some of these ayahs are wonderful masseuses, the art being passed from mother to daughter. This one was no exception to the rule. I had had a blow to my heel from a skittle-ball on board ship, and it still hurt me. I showed it to her, but instead of massaging the actual spot, she ran her fingers up to a most painful muscle or ligament, of which I had not been aware, and kneaded it so determinedly that it was not exactly enjoyable. Still, in three days, she did it a vast amount of good. She seemed to have the same intuitive knowledge of bones, joints, and muscles as the bone-setters, and I was told that she was not exceptional. She was always full of mystery, coming and going like a shadow, stealing into my room with her finger on her lip. She could not speak a word of English. One day she came and knelt in a little heap outside my mosquito curtains, and poured out a low mumble of Burmese, which, of course, I could not understand, but at last I caught the word kilo, which I knew meant baby. In fact, it was, and is, the only Burmese word I know, and I guessed she wanted to show me her baby, of which I had heard. So I signified assent, and she hastened away, to return presently, with as poor a little shriveled mite as ever I saw. It looked almost too wizened and monkey-like to be human. Its father was some wretched lad, who had gone off leaving wife and child. It was difficult not to show in my face the repulsion with which the poor little thing inspired me, while the mother looked down on it in the tenderest pride. The little woman never could understand that I spoke no Burmese. She always seemed to think, if she only talked enough, some of it would penetrate, and she emphasized all she said by quick nods and abundant gestures. She was a good, energetic little soul. The three lowest indoor servants are the sweeper, who does the dirty work, the paniwala, who brings the water for baths, and the cook's matey, who helps where he is told. Of these, the sweeper is always of the lowest caste. Their wages vary from about seven to fourteen rupees a month. The outdoor servants include a coachman and syce, also the doby, or washing-man, who, in all better families, is regularly engaged at about twenty-five rupees a month, in addition to his soap. He does the washing in the compound, and gets up muslins and frills amazingly well, considering his limited resources. It is just as well to have your clothes done under your own inspection, for some of the washing-places where the village dobies do congregate to clash the garments on the stones, the universal substitute for a posh-tub, are anything but clean, and a horrible ailment called doby-itch is common. Many of the dobies I saw were attractive-looking men clad in spotless linen. At Mulmain I could look out of my window and see the house doby, all in white with silver bangles on his wrists, beating the clothes on two stones, while beside him was the paniwala, clothed in a red loin-cloth, with gold earrings and a chignon, drawing water from the well, and near at hand was a picturesque group of plantains. The price of washing to an outsider is reasonable enough, about five rupees a hundred pieces, but it should be arranged beforehand, as the men will ask any price they think they can get. 
one can generally have washing done in a day or two of moving on but it is always well to employ a dobe recommended by someone the dursey or tailor is not an invariable adjunct to a house but a lady very often has her own dursey and pays him from twenty-five to thirty rupees a month the dursies seem to me as a rule not nearly so attractive as the dobies they were often coarse and greasy looking they are very quick-fingered and copy anything set them marvellously but are quite unable to originate or suggest the mally or gardener has not the same standing as his kind in england he probably acts for several houses and part of his work is to cut grass for the horses by contract then there is the derwan or night watchman an important functionary in a country where there are no front doors to lock and the veranda is the living-room open to anyone it is doubtful if the derwan has ever done much but the knowledge that he is there and may be awake probably acts preventatively in a land where men are not very brave what I enjoyed most of all during my delightful time at Moulmein was meeting Burmese ladies on social terms. On Christmas Day we were coming back from an early service in church, where punkas were kept swinging, where nearly everyone wore topees, and the decorations were almost wholly of pink and white roses. We encountered the principal Burmese lady in Moulmein, Mashwe Buen, and her adopted son and daughter-in-law coming up to call. Mashwe Buen means Mrs. Golden Blooming. In Burmese courtesy titles, a woman is always Ma, which means either Mrs. or Miss. An old woman is, however, called Amaiji. A young Burman is at first a Lugali, or boy. Then he is addressed as Mung, which really means brother, but has come to signify Mr. After about forty years of age, a man is addressed as Ko, and still older as oo if he grow to be very old and very much respected he is apogi whereas any one who builds a rest-house has the title of zayat paya zayat meaning a rest-house and any one who builds a shrine is paya taga burmese words have so many different meanings that it is often difficult to fix the exact intention of a name for instance the little house aya was Mamo, which might mean either Mrs. or Miss, Mushroom, Rain, or Roof. Mashwe Buen I quickly learned to love and respect. She is one of the real old aristocrats of Burma, and in her manners and appearance you feel all the time that she is a gentlewoman. I never met anyone else with whom to compare her while I was in the country. She is a widow and enormously rich owning mills and transacting business matters but she cannot speak english and has always had to have an interpreter luckily in moulmein this is not difficult for so many of the young burmans attend the english schools that nearly all boys of fifteen or so speak english mashwe buen was very plainly dressed without a scrap of jewellery for it is the custom for the burmese ladies to pass their jewellery on to their daughters-in-law when they arrive at about forty which is comparatively much older than with us as married life begins about sixteen she was dressed in a dark bronze flowering lungi and a little white jacket with a pretty scarf of light muslin covered with green spots 
thrown over her shoulders, and she wore pink satin shoes with with a divided strap passing between the first two toes. The adopted son was a short, fat man in a gorgeous pink silk putso of a large check pattern. He had left his patent leather shoes and silk socks at the foot of the staircase. The wearing of European shoes by young Burma makes this matter of shoe-dropping a difficult one, but in spite of this no really well-mannered Burman would think of coming into a room where there were ladies in shoes any more than a well-mannered Englishman would come in wearing a hat. Here, as in so many other cases, the newer code is ousting the older one and giving nothing in place of it. A Burman cannot remove his turban. In fact, this in itself would be an act of disrespect. Yet he keeps on his English shoes, and so discards his own manners, without replacing them by ours. It is also not considered polite for a man to sit in the presence of ladies, and I must say Moshwe Bwin's son was very polite. However, he was not agile in the English tongue, and, as an interpreter, lacked a good deal. To me, unaccustomed to Burmese methods, to have to carry on the conversation in scraps with a man who stood all the time was constraining. Indeed, I found this manner of conversation a great difficulty. The topics were strictly limited. The replies were even more so, and it was impossible to go on asking questions all the time. The old lady had brought plantains, oranges, fancy biscuits, and a cake in a tin box as presents, and, when we had discussed these and a few other things, I stopped altogether, and yet there was so much I wanted to ask our guests. If I could have talked direct to the old lady herself, how much better I could have got on. At last, as a happy thought, I brought in some Burmese silks I had bought, and this aroused interest. They examined them all carefully, fingering them, trying the texture to asking the price, which is always a polite thing to do. I was pleased to hear I had paid not too much. The silk I had got to make up into a lungi for myself attracted special attention. It was of a glorious red-gold or nasturtium color, which would have been quite impossible to match in England. I asked how I should judge what width of material to use for the lungi, and was told the correct thing was to take as much as would go folded around the waist, and as much again as reached doubled to the tip of the middle finger, when the elbow is pressed into the waist, in fact, the old measure of a cubit. At length, as I had hoped, the ladies kindly offered to take away the silk and make the garment for me, for which I was very grateful, as then I was sure it would be correctly done. I then asked if I might take a photo of Mashwebwen, and after some gentle protest, on the ground that her clothes were not good enough, she consented, and we went into the sunlight of the lower veranda. Unfortunately, the photograph, though clear, does not give any idea of that wise, shrewd, kindly face. When we shook hands, English fashion, in parting, she asked us to come and see her, and promised to take us to see the shrine which she was having built. She subsequently carried out her promise of making me the lungi and sent it to me, and then, finding she had inadvertently retained a piece of the silk, which was over, she returned it with the following little note, evidently written for her by her son or grandson. Dear Madam, I am very sorry to forget to send this piece of cloth. 
now i saw in my box at once i send to you please excuse me i close my letter with loved ma shui bin anything more gloomy and uncomfortable than a wealthy burman's house it would be hard to find they seem to have adopted all the worst features of the english house and discovered none of its comfort i went with mrs m one day to call on some very wealthy burmans money-lenders who were not aristocrats like ma shui bin but had made their money recently the house outside looked like a square solid brick and cement mansion in an early victorian style in two stories there was a sort of veranda or step in front roofed in and from this the front door opened immediately into the living-room which occupied the whole area between the principal four walls there was no window in it at all and the only light came in from the front door on the far side of the room was a corresponding door leading to back premises and very dark the room was paved with cement and was very high and dismal there was a round wooden table that might in england be used for a kitchen table in the middle and several hard-backed chairs and a few small sofas covered with dust-cloths set back against the wall as a concession to european taste the burman of course always prefers to sit on the floor it is only the boys at the english schools who are learning the use of seats one corner of the room was partitioned off and we were told that there lay the master of the house who was ill the burman has a very strong prejudice against having any one's feet over his head and consequently the upper story is not used when it is avoidable yet here a wooden staircase or ladder led upward through a sort of trap in the ceiling so perhaps some members of the family slept upstairs we had not forewarned our friends of our coming and consequently caught them unawares but even then the daughter who is about eighteen and newly married was wearing a double diamonds as a species of links all down the front of her little ingi and each one was as large as a finger-nail i could not believe at first they were diamonds but was assured of it as no burman would wear any imitation jewellery they were probably not of the first water might be yellowish in colour but diamonds they were otherwise she was not prettily dressed and she promised to come and see us when she had all her jewellery and best clothes on a promise she kept she seemed a mere little doll fit only for the wearing of jewellery and was contrast to her sensible-looking mother my visit to burma dissipated finally the idea of the burman girls being pretty according to our ideas they are sometimes dear coquettish little things with a great deal of charm and some personality but to apply the word pretty to their broad noses flat little faces thanica stained and to the straight strained greased hair is a misuse of adjectives taking charming gracious alluring are all in the right places applied to them but not pretty sir j g scott expresses this very well in saying of japanese and burmese women alike both have the power of beauty without the possession of it i found conversations here a difficulty also there was a boy of about fifteen a son of ma kin lee the old lady and he interpreted but i could not get on easily the lady solemnly inquired my age where i came from how much my clothes cost 
and several other personal details, and then the silence became oppressive. I, in my turn, inquired of the boy, whose name was Mung Ba, when he would be married. He told me, at about twenty, and that his father would choose his wife, and that afterwards he would go live at the house of his father-in-law, that he did not learn to do anything particular, because his work in life would be the same as his father's-in-law, and he did not know yet what it would be, that he would be free to say no, if he did not like the girl, but he would never in any case see her unchaperoned until they were married. In reply to my questions as to the usual household arrangements and how the ladies employed themselves, he said they had two meals a day, one at nine in the morning, after which the ladies prayed for about an hour, and another at four in the afternoon, that the ladies preserved ginger and sewed to fill up their days. I give his replies unadorned. It is difficult to gather any but the crudest notions from an eastern boy speaking in an imperfectly known tongue. Of course, one hears always that the married women in Burma do a great deal of business, and even the unmarried girls keep stores in the bazaar. But Mung Ba told me that after the ear-boring ceremony, i.e., when she is of a marriageable age, no girl is allowed to go about alone. We did not stay long here, passing on to fulfill our promise to Ma Shui Buin. Her front room was the facsimile of that we had just left, except that very high up on the walls were some marvellous native pictures, done in the most gorgeous colours, and utterly innocent of perspective. They were partly painted, partly worked in silk, and they were lavishly decorated with spangles of gold. Two of these were old and came from Mandalay, she told us. She sat on her chair in a funny little hump, with her feet tucked up under her. It is perfectly amazing how the Burmese ladies stow away their lower limbs. They seem reduced to a trunk only, almost as if they had the power of telescoping. A very pleasant, unaffected lad of sixteen undertook the office of interpreter. He told me he was called Mung Api and I think he was a grandson of Ma Shui Buen. He was very simply dressed, in a thin merino English vest and a cotton lungi, with his hair cropped like that of an English boy. The conversation went on something in this style. Has Ma Shui Buen any daughters? Yes, three. Do they live here? No, not two. In Mulmain? No. Are they married? They are dead. Thus abruptly ended that topic. I was told afterwards that dead may equally mean disgraced or dead to family. In the pause that ensued, the old lady said something to the boy, who hesitated and looked at me shyly, but after encouragement he came across and said to me in his soft voice, "'She wants to know what does your husband?' "'Tell her that I have no husband.' On receipt of this information there followed a long silence. The old lady's face became perceptibly more solemn. Then she said something, and the boy in his graceful, timid way informed me, She says she is praying for you. Luckily refreshments appeared at this moment, when it was difficult to preserve a becoming gravity, and formed a welcome break. They consisted of plantains, 
oranges, lemonade, and, for adornment, bunches of small and rather dull orchid, which must have been common, as every little schoolchild had a spray of it in her hair. Then we were told we might go to see the wonderful shrine Mashwe Buin is building. She and another woman, who seemed a kind of family retainer or poor relation, and the boy went in a gary. We followed in the carriage. We had to dismount at the foot of the ridge and walk up a steep and rugged track, which the frail-looking little old lady took slowly. My heart warmed to her. She looked so small in her tightly wound lungi, and her face was so humorous and sensible, that I would very willingly have kissed her, and all feeling as between myself and a coloured race had vanished. The ascent was not long, and we came out on a flat space, where numbers of native coolies, working at the roof of the shrine, were passing up and down a wide bamboo ladder. So we went in saw the great image of a colossal Buddha of shining brass with a gold head. Mung Api explained in awestruck whispers that this was no mask, but a head of solid gold right through, and for sanctity none could compare with it but the Buddha in the Arakan Pagoda near Mandalay. She told me at first there were one hundred vis of gold in the head but came back later to correct himself and say he had met one thousand. One thousand vis equals three hundred and sixty-five pounds weight of gold, and reckoning it at three pounds, seventeen shillings, six pence, the ounce, this comes out between sixteen thousand and seventeen thousand pounds, which is surely stupendous. I am told, however, that Ma Shui did not pay for it all herself, though the greater part came from her. At the casting, when Mrs. M. was present, there was a great ceremony and tremendous excitement and religious fervor, so that men gave money and girls tore off their bangles and earrings and threw them into the melting pot. Many offerings of the usual sort were heaped before the Buddha, who had rather an expressionless face as Buddhas go, and when I asked the boy, what was the significance of the two hideous figures which stood on each side, he replied, No meaning, only for agreeable. The light was fast going, but I got a photograph of the little old lady as she sat crouched up by the door of her shrine with a wonderful spiritual fervor in her expression. To look at her in her Spartan simplicity of dress, one might have thought her almost a beggar, and then one remembered the gold so lavishly poured out and the contrast was piquant. As we passed down, she suggested we should rest in one of the rest-houses near, and I asked that I might go on to the nearest and largest of the three pagodas on the ridge, with Mungapi for guide, while the others waited, instead of climbing the terrible flights of stairs that led up to it. I was glad to get this opportunity of talking to an intelligent lad, but I fear I did not make so much of it as another might have done. He told me long tales of gnats and baloos, spirits and devils, which I could not follow. He showed me two representations of the latter, real bogies on the stairway, and said they were the kind that haunted dark woods. He pointed out the tall praying columns, and said they were to the heaven-born gnats. He told me he was very soon going through the novitiate in the priesthood, which every Burman undergoes, and before which 
he is not considered a man, but an animal. He said some boys went for three months, and seven days was the very least time you could give with self-respect. The probation is generally done during the holidays. I asked him if, when a boy becomes a real monk, it was because his father willed it, or because he wanted to be one himself, and he replied that, as a rule, it was the father's doing, but the father would not choose a boy who was not good. He was careful to explain that the Burmans do not worship Buddha. The images are only to remind them and make them think. They do not believe them to be alive. I was rather amused when he launched out on a topic of his own, and said one thing had always puzzled him, and that was the Englishman in the ICS, who had passed high examinations in Burmese, often could not speak it at all. He instanced one man, a friend of my own, in whose office he had been, and said, He has passed very good examination, but he does not speak, not at all. Even in the court he has an interpreter. I do not think he knows. I did not give this boy away when I met his superior again. I liked him particularly. He was quite untainted with the modern affectations, and during all my wanderings in which I met many Burmese boys, I never came across one who appealed to me so much as Mung Api. Ma Kin Lee and her son and daughter were not long in paying us the promised return call, and when I saw the girl's jewelry I was positively startled by it. The huge diamond links still figured prominently in her jacket, and she wore also earrings and rings set with immense stones. Her bangles were flat bars of gold, a mass of diamonds, and a large diamond pin impaled her top knot of hair. All these stones are set in a way that appears to us clumsy, and which certainly does not show them off to advantage. That is to say, they have the point outwards, and stand on a sort of little platform of very solid gold, so the effect is that of a miniature pyramid. The daughter, whose name is Ma Mya Hnit, was, besides her jewelry, excessively smart, wearing a pink silk-figured lungi, pink scarf, and china silk ingi, diversified by a little blue pattern. Her face was thickly daubed with anica paste, so as to make her look quite fair. When put on carefully, the stuff is not offensive, as it has a slightly fragrant smell, but when left in a clumsy line across the forehead, at the roots of the hair, as is done by many girls, it is like an ugly mask. Her hair was very shiny and bound into the tightest little knob. The boy, who had an intelligent face, round, bright brown eyes, and rather thick lips, like his sister, was a finished specimen of young Burma. He was dressed in a rainbow silk lungi, for boys do not wear a putso until they are married, an ordinary English shirt with diamond studs and gold sleeve links. Over this was a white Burmese jacket. His gold watch-chain was very much in evidence, and also his yellow leather lace-up shoes, which he did not remove downstairs. He sat while he talked, and his manners contrasted very unfavorably with those of Mongapi. The older lady smoked a big green cheroot solemnly the whole time she stayed. I offered her and her daughter my own cigarettes, and they took them, 
but the girl did not get on with hers, and after a while Ma Kin Lee explained that her daughter was not much of a smoker, and she took the cigarette from her and finished it after her own, resuming later her own green cheroot, which had lain slowly burning on the edge of the table near her all the time. These cheroots are not made of pure tobacco, but of the pith of a tree, which looks like sawdust, this is mixed with a little tobacco and ginger and perhaps opium and the peculiar smoke made in burning is sharp and acrid it is the funniest sight to see the little burmese ladies making their by no means large mouths into round holes for the insertion of the mighty end we gave our guests soda water among other refreshments and when i saw them drink it i feared they must have thought me sadly lacking in manners for I did not make the appreciative grumbles and grunts in the truly courteous way after drinking. When I asked them, they willingly consented to be photographed, and our going downstairs to take them broke up a sitting which had become most insupportably wearying, as they stayed nearly two hours. When Mr. M. came in, he said that was our own fault. They could not go until we made the move." End of chapter 3